let's look at some Old Testament verses here that talk about the necessity of the atonement. Exodus chapter 12, verses five and seven says, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the lintel of the house where they eat. This is talking about the first Pesach or the first Passover of the Jewish people as God was bringing them out of Egypt. This is the Exodus. And you can find it by going and studying the the whole book of Exodus there. You will realize that there needed to be a sufficient Paschal lamb, pure, without spot or blemish. And each household was to sacrifice a lamb for itself The blood was to be drained into a basin and then with a hyssop, which is basically a big branch, with a hyssop branch, the outside lintels of the doorposts were to be coated with the blood of that lamb. And in so doing, the angel of death would pass over each one of those homes or the firstborn son would be taken. And the next morning, there's a great plague of outcries of the Egyptians as all their firstborns, their, their firstborn sons are all dead, all of them. Apparently, I'm having a hard time talking tonight. Firstborn sons, woo! Uh, at that point, Pharaoh finally looked at the Egypt, kind of looked at the Israelites and said, you're a curse to me. Like, man, get out, get out. But hold on to this verse, all right? It's very contextually important. Hold on to that. Leviticus 17.11 probably as touted as one of the verses that speak about sacrificial death atonement more than anything else in the Holy Scriptures. Leviticus 17, 11 says, the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And if you don't think this verse is true, how much of your blood could you lose without losing your life? Not a lot, because there's only a couple pints in every human body. So this is the honest to goodness truth, whether you think the Bible is a crocker, whether you put validity in it or not. This is the truth of the matter. 5,000 years ago, even the Israelites knew this. The life of every creature is its blood. All right, there is a super highway going on inside of your body. It's quite amazing. The whole cardiovascular system your, your nervous system, how it's all tied together, how blood is pumping and flowing all over the place and replenishing itself. It's just the human body is an amazing thing. But anyone here knows anything about the body knows that gunshot victims, unless treated or a tourniquet can be applied quickly, run the risk of bleeding out because your heart doesn't stop pumping because if it does, you're dead. And you'll pump right out whatever exit wound you have in your body. And I need you to know really quickly because, you know, some people get a little bent out of shape over this. The Israelites were extremely humane in how they sacrificed their animals. All all the main arteries across the neck were cut at the same time. And it was as humane as it could be. But notice here, this, this verse... God is telling his people, there's something extremely sufficient about blood. Zechariah 
12, 10 says, and I, and it's the Lord speaking in this verse, will pour out on the house of David the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me, the Lord, whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. This is many, many, many hundreds of years before the Persians invented crucifixion. And I know you think I'm being historically inaccurate. I assure you I'm not. It's not the Romans who invented crucifixion. It's the Romans, my people in large part, who made who made crucifixion exceedingly abundantly more despicably cruel. When the Persians invented it, it was for capital punishment. The Romans learned how to give a man just enough vigor to last three to four days on a cross. And if, again, you know anything about the human body, you usually died of dehydration before anything else. The will to live on the cross, the will to live in every creature on this planet is very strong. Here, God is saying people are going to look on me, and he's talking in context about Israel, on those whom they've pierced, and then notice there in the second verse, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one who grieves for a firstborn. And I believe the truth of this verse will be fulfilled when Jesus Christ returns to the earth and Israelites are welcome to once again look upon him who was pierced for our transgressions. Think about it. How did they recognize Jesus on the road to Damascus after they walked with him for a full day? They invited Jesus back to a home, and when they went to pray for a meal in typical rabbinic fashion, I'll assure you Jesus put his hands over his head in the air to bless the bread and wine, And I'm fairly positive that those disciples would have seen crucifixion scars. Because it's often been said, and it's something I really do believe in, the only human-made thing that will ever exist for all of eternity are the scars that our risen Savior's body shall bear. And people say, well, why do you believe that? Well, first of all, it's because I believe in resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead in the same body he died in. Otherwise, you don't know what resurrection is. And I know there's this new body theory going around in Christian churches. And you know what? I have no problem debating people on how dumb it is. It's not a new body. It's a transformation body. And that's very different. If you think butterflies get a new body, they don't. It's the same exact caterpillar that spun itself into a chrysalis. It is a great metamorphosis, which is a change of the same kind in being. What happened to the, well, then what happened to the caterpillar's old body? That's always what I ask people. Well, where's the old caterpillar's body? Oh, I, he didn't, he transformed. Just, just amazing, wonderful design thing going on. Transformed. We know Jesus' body bore the crucifixion scars because Thomas didn't believe, did he? And Jesus comes and he says, come here, Thomas. Take your fingers, put them here in the prints. Take your hand, thrust it in my side. Stop disbelieving and believe. And that is the resurrection exaltation body of our savior, the same one that ascended back to the father 40 days later. Real scars. And I believe when Yeshua returns, 
the holy people of Israel will see him again. And you know what they're going to get to see? They're going to get to see the same scars his first century Jewish disciples saw. And I think that's pretty neat. So I want to turn our attention very quickly to the Dead Sea Scroll of Isaiah, known as the Great Scroll of Isaiah. It is one of the most complete scrolls out of all of the Dead Sea Scroll finds. It was copied somewhere around 100 BC, making it the absolute positive oldest copy, not of the Old Testament that we possess. It's the oldest copy of Isaiah that we possess. And the Great Isaiah Scroll is 100% complete, except for three words that have kind of been scratched through and worn out on the parchment. But other than that, it's an amazing copy. It's so long that it would have taken an entire flock of sheep would have needed to have been slaughtered and tanned to actually make the parchment because the Dead Sea Scrolls, again, they're not papyrus, they're vellum. It's animal skin, tanned, tanned animal skin or what the Dead Sea Scrolls are made out of. And it's a miracle that they lasted as long as they did. And I go with miracle because everything in Israel would have loved to destroy it next to the weather or all the animals that live in those moral caves up in the Dead Sea Scroll Qumran area are known to eat leather. I know. Everyone, is anyone here old enough to know what a mothball is? Woohoo! Yeah, one person agrees with me. Like, yeah, you're old like me. Yeah, you put mothballs inside of cotton garments because the caterpillar stage of a moth loves to eat anything organic. And cotton is organic and leather is organic. And there are some scrolls that have massive damage due to cave, words, cave worms chewing through them. So this is a, a miraculous thing. And when compared to the, again, older scroll of Isaiah, the Isaiah scroll of the Dead Seas from 100 BC compared to Codex Aleppo of 1180 was 100% in the Hebrew except for four different words. Now ready? Now I'm gonna blow your mind on the four different words. The four different words found in 1100 compared to 100 BC are still the exact same idea for the Hebrew word light or illuminate. And we have lots of different words. I just used two of them, they're the exact same thing. If I told you to turn on the lights or asked you in a very highfalutin way to please illuminate the room. Didn't I say that? I love when people get like all like persnickety over words. Like, didn't I just say the exact same thing? Or is everyone here just stupid together? I said the exact same thing with different verbiage. That's me, that, that means that basically the content hasn't changed a bit. Now, why some Hebrew scholar felt the need to change the word for light in four different places? We may never know, and I'm not going to make a big deal about it because it still means the same thing, to illuminate. But it's amazing when you look at Isaiah 53, and I'm not going to read all of Isaiah 53. What I want you to do is quickly glance over it with your eyes, just the entire chapter, because Isaiah 53 is only 12 verses. It's a very short chapter. But just take a look at all the words highlighted in red. You see a similarity? The similarity you should see is that every single one of those words is singular. Amen? All right, we're all great students of grammar together. Again, take a look at all the words I highlighted in red. 
Every single one of them is in the singular. Grammar is real funny that way. You can't twist it too hard. Because there are many scholars today who say, Isaiah 53 is not about the coming Messiah. It's about Israel, the suffering servant. And I couldn't disagree with that more radically. 57 times some derivation of the word, either he, him, or his, is found here in this chapter. Now note, words and phrases uh, indicate a plurality of people are distinct from words like he, him, and his. Like the phrase, his people, is about a singular person talking about a multiplicity of people. His people. It's singular, plural. His generation is a singular, plural. All of us is, without fail, plural. The sins of the many is a double plural, talking about multiple of sins of all the people. Great ones is plural. Wicked ones, transgressors, many and there. It's easy to see that grammar doesn't lie. Who is this suffering servant that Isaiah is speaking about in Isaiah 53? And I've got to tell you guys, it's not Israel. And that's, not, that's certainly not because I'm anti-Semitic because I'm 7% Jewish and 12% Persian. So in my crazy, funky Mediterranean mix of a Mediterranean mutt, which is usually what I call myself, very largely Sicilian, and then Jewish and Persian, I have a great love for all of my cultural heritage. I truly do. But this verse is not talking about the suffering service. Matter of fact, many times Israel is referred to in the feminine genitive in the Old Testament. Sometimes she's referred to as the bride of Yahweh. Sometimes Israel is called the son of God or the son of Yahweh. And so you have to fit it into the particular context of whatever God is trying to say in that book or verse. And that's how we do real biblical theology. We don't dictate to God's word what God's words mean. That is ridiculous. We let God's word Tell us what it's saying. Everyone here reads books the exact same way. The exact same way. I do not buy for a second postmodern hermeneutics or linguistics for a second. You, as the reader, cannot interpret a text any way you want. Otherwise, you cannot function in life. If you went to a doctor because you had an ear infection... All right, it's a really simple one. It's not going to hurt anyone's head too much. If you went to a doctor and he, you know, stuck his little scopey thing in your ear and he goes, ooh, that doesn't look so good. You have an inner ear infection. All right, so here's some amoxicillin. And I want you to do is I want you to take two amoxicillin for 10 days. What dope here would go home and go, you know what? I'm just going to interpret this any way I want. I hate this ear infection. It sucks bad. I'm going to take 10 amoxicillin for two days. Because, I mean, I really have not got too funky with the script. It says I should take two a day for 10, so let's flip it. If I do 10 a day for two, besides having diarrhea for a week and a half, I want you to know, I can tell you right now, as a, as a doctor... Not of education, not of medical, but I can tell you in all my reading books and studying, you're still going to have an ear infection and diarrhea. 
So don't do that. You know, we just really need to trust professionals sometimes. If the doctor says two a day for 10, probably what you need. We can't take a text and just interpret it any old way we want because that would be ridiculous. We don't do that. The word of God is sufficient to teach us everything we need to know. Should we humble our hearts and come to it as such? So let's look at the New Testament basis or some of the verses there. Mark 10, 45. How about the very words of Messiah Jesus? Jesus said, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus told us he was going to give his life. Give his life is a metaphor for die. Give his life. Or Matthew 12, 38 through 40. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And I'll be completely honest with you. I bet most of the people there did not catch or pick up what Jesus was laying down. And I know that Jonah and the whale, or if you prefer, Jonah and the great fish, it's your call. I'm good with either one. Not happening, I'm going to tell you that you should probably go back and read the book of Jonah again and read the words of Jonah ever so carefully. Because in his prayer, he says that he cries out to Yahweh from the depths of, very important Hebrew word, Sheol. And I know a lot of people believe that Jonah was miraculously preserved in the heart of the great fish for three days. I'm going to tell you, I'm on the other side of scholarship. I think Jonah was dead as a doornail in the heart of the great fish for three days. And God resuscitated him, brought him back from the depths of Sheol. And that great fish spit him out there on the shores, probably really close to Jaffa, where he had left. And then he returned back and went to the Ninevites to tell his, his tale of being in a great fish. Why is it so important? Because the Ninevites worshipped a god called Dagon. Dagon was half fish, half man. And so that whole thing was very foreordained by God in a bunch of different ways. And we're going to study Jonah one day because it's a good, good long read. I think Jesus is trying to tell people there is a great metaphor to be found in the life of the reluctant prophet Jonah. For he was three days and three nights in the heart of the great fish. Jesus said he would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's the sepulcher before his resurrection. Again, implying that he was going to die and be buried. What happened to Jonah? Did he stay in the fish? No, he came out of the fish. And Christ didn't stay in the heart of the earth. He rose on the third day. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose on the third day according to the scriptures. These are all things that Paul, who again was an Old Testament rabbinic scholar, so well versed in all of the Tanakh, he knew all of the Old Testament. 
inside and out and would have studied. And we're told in the scriptures that he studied at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, he was a big rabbinic scholar in Paul's day. So Paul studied with the best scholars there were. And Paul is saying, this is all in fulfillment of what God's word says. Second Corinthians 5.21 tells us, for he, the father, has made him, Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is often what I refer to as Paul's very succinct telling of the gospel. This is the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus Christ, who was perfect and holy, who knew no sin, died for a bunch of sinners who knew no righteousness. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the whole of the gospel in one verse. In just one verse. Hebrews 9.22 and verse 26 tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Why? Because Leviticus 17.11 said, the life of the flesh is in the blood and God made it to make atonement on the altar. That's why Hebrews 9.22 says again, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Verse 26, but now, Once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover lamb. For the first Passover lamb and every subsequent one up to his own death was a foreshadowing of what was to come. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes we were healed. Where does Peter get that from? Doesn't that sound just like Isaiah 53? By his stripes we are healed. I know a lot of prosperity teachers today want to make that about every physical healing on the planet, and I couldn't disagree lovingly more with them. Jesus is beating because that's what the Romans did to him. Those are the stripes referred to, being whipped with a Roman cat and nine tail, which just so you know, historically speaking, was a nine thronged whip, nine leather long straps intertwined with pieces of broken glass, shards of metal, and bits of animal bone. And when they stuck it to your back, it grabbed flesh. And when they ripped it back, flesh came with it. And that is why the scourging that Rome usually gave out killed most men. Killed most men. Scourging killed most men. If you didn't die there, you went home and died of infection a day or two later. Just from that beating. Have you ever wondered why Jesus could no longer carry his crossbeam? And Simon the Cyrene was literally yanked out of the crowd by the Roman centurions? It's because he, they, they beat him within an inch of his life. And by his stripes, we are healed. You know, if you've never thought of the gospel, think of it in a real way. Jesus paid a debt he most certainly did not owe. 
because we had a debt we could not pay. That's the truth of the gospel of grace. And I know what everyone's thinking. Oh, it's so easy. Praise God, it's so easy. Because if it was hard, none of us would be saved. And people are uncomfortable with grace, right? Everyone I know. Like, everyone likes to talk about it, but everyone's uncomfortable with it. How comfortable would you be if I came up on stage with a pair of underwear on my head? How comfortable would I be if I came up on the stage with a pair of underwear on my head? I'd probably be really uncomfortable. Yeah, there's a lot of things in the world that are going to make you uncomfortable. Ready? You're adults now. Get over yourself. That's what grace is. Grace is the unmerited unearned and undeserved favor of almighty God upon a people who are completely undeserving. That's what grace is. And God has lavished that grace upon us by his son going to the cross for us. It is ultimately the only remedy for humanity's sin problem because we're all sinners. And I know everyone likes to play the sliding scale of the goodness, right? But I'm really good. Yeah, compared to who? Mr. Rogers or Mr. T? How about if you compared yourself to Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory? Now not so good anymore. You see, it's not goodness that gets you into heaven. Ready? It's perfection. And we all lack that. That is what Christ offers us in the atonement. He offers that which you could never do on your own. You've got no sacrifice. You are not a sacrifice. You are not good enough. There's only one good, Messiah Jesus. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ himself also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, that is why Jesus went to the cross, that he might ultimately ultimately procure our freedom. And look, brothers and sisters, I'm going to tell you, Jesus wants you to walk in that newness of life. Jesus wants you to walk in freedom. He wants you to enjoy that. It's Satan who wants to bound you up and give you a big list of do's and don'ts. And I can tell you that's the worst kind of Christianity on the planet because you're never going to be happy with yourself or anyone else. And you'll always look down your nose at everyone else. You're not running a race against anyone but yourself. Freedom. Real, true, and absolute freedom comes from only knowing that you don't have it in you. And that there is one greater, the Lord Jesus Christ, who paid it all for you. So let's take a look at two quick ancient creeds of the church. The Apostles' Creed, penned around AD 200, said, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Remember, the early church didn't have Bibles, all right? You'd be, by today's standard, a billionaire if you could afford 
copies of the scriptures around AD 200. Because first of all, you would need a scribe who was literate and knew how to translate and speak and read multiple different languages so you could actually have something. So the early church put things in creeds. Remember that Latin word again, credo. It means I believe. And that's how most of the church creeds begin. I believe. And they were penned in a way that most people could easily hang on to them. And they're chock full of great doctrines. Now, we don't get real creedal in Calvary Chapel. And I always tell people, that's, a, that's always been a mistake of Calvary Chapel for me. Why would you stop studying something that the church has held high and holy for 1,800 years? I don't think it's a good idea. All the professors I studied with in seminary all said the creeds are all orthodox. I mean, at least, you know, the first couple that were penned by the orthodox church are still really rich. And every one of them built on a scriptural truth. I've shown this to many doubting pastors and said, now show me the doctrinal error in it anywhere. Go ahead, pick it out. Tell me what you don't like. Well, this is all straight up New Testament stuff here. It's, this is the truth. Everything written in his creed is the truth. And the early church went out of their way to, again, emphasize that the Lord Jesus Christ, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried, and that he rose again on the third day. So after that, we'll take a look at the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed was written right around, you guessed it, the Council of Nicaea, AD 325. The, the creed basically states, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. I know a lot of people go, ah, it's just a creedal statement of a bunch of old dead guys. Well, let me tell you something about the creeds of the church. These were written and penned by men and women who very in large part were absolutely brutally tortured by the Roman Empire to state that they had not seen Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Because let me tell you something, Rome was really good at killing people, okay? They had professional executioners, and in Rome, if you didn't know this, if you didn't actually put to death someone condemned to death, Guess who died next? You did in their place. So let me tell you something. People often wonder, why did they jam a big spear in Jesus' side after he yielded his spirit up to the Father? Because the professional executioner wanted to be really, really sure that Jesus was dead on that cross before taking him down. These men and women of the ancient church suffered the harshest, most brutal forms of torture you can think of. They pan-fried Barnabas alive in the Colosseum. Yes, that's right. They took a giant metal sheet, put it over a roaring, raging fire, and they rolled him around with large poles until he burned over his entire body, slowly died. 
they staked out many of the other apostles and associate apostles out in the desert to die from dehydration while also being preyed on by vultures who would come down and pick you apart while you slowly died. Sound like a nice way to die, anybody? All for having said that they'd seen Jesus of Nazareth three days or more after his crucifixion. You see, you can tell me Christianity is a sham. That's, that's fine. That's your own free will. You do whatever you want with your free will. But I'm going to tell you, there's hundreds of Christian martyrs who will argue with you differently. And I'll tell you, you can die and be deceived all day long, but I don't know one sociopath on the planet who would go to a murderous and horrific death for a lie. I don't know one. And you'd have to be a certain kind of crazy to do that. What did the apostles have to gain in coming up with a lie? Can you think of that? Could you think of that? Could you be there 2,000 years ago in that conversation? All right, guys, we hid Jesus's body. We'll keep it good and hid. I've got this great idea. Let's go around perpetuating a huge lie that he came back from the dead and, and a lot of fortunes in it for us. Well, really, Peter, lay it on us. What's going to happen? They're going to beat us. They're going to take our stuff. They're going to murder our wives and they're going to put us to death. Well, how much money are we going to make in this? Nothing. We're going to live in abject poverty everywhere we go spreading the gospel. And everyone we run into and tell that we have seen Yeshua HaMashiach back from the dead probably is going to run to one of the prefects of Rome and have us hunted down and again, tortured and probably crucified or maybe worse. Wow, that's awesome. Where do I sign? I mean, let's get in on that. Someone write up a contract. Let's get an MOU going, you know. What? The disciples and early apostles had nothing to gain but death in speaking the truth of what they had seen. And Paul tells us that there were still roughly 500 disciples alive who had seen the risen Christ. Because go back and put on your thinking cap. Jesus didn't rise from the dead on the third day and then ascend back to the Father on the fourth day. He remained for 40 days and then ascended back on high to the Father. So that's over a month. And you can travel around and see a lot of different disciples encouraging them that you are who you say you are. Almighty God incarnate. So let's talk about the doctrinal importance and the reasons for a substitutionary atonement because this too in Christianity is often argued. You know, why substitutionary atonement? Uh, one modern-day theologian called this divine cosmic child abuse. I won't use Brian McLaren's name in a sermon. Oh, whoopsie, there it goes. Sorry about that. Look, I hear Brian McLaren's a nice guy. He'd probably invite you to his house, make you a great meal, give you the shirt off his back, but he's dead wrong on that. All right? It's not divine cosmic child abuse. For the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are one. And what they do, they do, they, they do in one accord for one purpose with one will. And think on it, if Jesus didn't go to the cross, then we are all still in our sins. And we remain absolutely without hope. So it's ridiculous to call it a gory and disgusting gospel of divine cosmic abuse. Nothing could be more blasphemous and heretical. Look, God's absolute Justice demands it. 
Habakkuk tells us God cannot look upon sin. And so many people get this wrong. Like, you know, God's so holy, he sees sin. And, you know, he screams like he's seen a spider crawling up the wall. You know, ah, sin, oh! That's, that's not what the word means. That's not what it means. That's not the concept. And it doesn't mean that in Hebrew. It means that God does not look favorably upon sin and he doesn't wink the eye at it. God just doesn't go, oh, Robbie, you sinner? I got you, boy. It's all good. Everyone else, condemned. You, I got you. No, you see, if God did that, he wouldn't be just. And you want a just God. What he did is he required a just sacrifice. God doesn't wink the eye at sin. He just doesn't. Instead, he makes provision. That's what kind of God he is. He makes provision. Number two, our complete depravity demands it. Romans goes on to say there is no, none good, no, not one. Not one who seeks after God. All have turned astray. The poison of asps and cobras is upon their mouths. Brothers and sisters, that's all of us. Whether you're like a big league, major league sinner or in the minor leagues, it doesn't matter. Missing the mark of perfection, by definition, is sin. And perfection is hard to hit. We are completely depraved. But Christ has made a way. The Old Testament sacrificial lamb prefigures it. Jesus is the lamb of God. He's our Passover lamb to bring us from true death in the world to true life in himself. Number four, Isaiah 53, the whole chapter explicitly teaches substitutionary atonement, that he's going to do this on our behalf. Number five, Jesus was presented as the sacrificial lamb, as we'll see in a couple of minutes. That's exactly how he's referred to in the New Testament. Number six, Jesus presented his death as a ransom, as we've already read in Mark 10.45. He said he was going to give himself a ransom for many. Number seven, Jesus dying for that Greek word, uh, huper literally means that there's going to be a substitution made on behalf of others. Hupor, for. I'm going to do it for you. You can't mow your lawn because you broke your leg. Don't worry. I'll come over and I'll do it for you. That means I did it instead of you because you were unable to do it. That's what huper means in Greek. The very word anti also found in Mark 10, 45. Jesus being sacrificed again. This time the word is anti, translated as for, means instead of. Everyone thinks anti always means against. It's one of the biggest mistakes Christians make with the Antichrist. When the Antichrist comes on the scene, he doesn't have a giant AC on his chest. He doesn't show up and talk really bad about Jesus. <laughs> I can't stand Jesus. <laughs> I'm so anti. This, that's not the only... <laughs> I get to believe, Do you know that every word on the planet has a semantic range of meanings? No one word in the world means one anything. It only means something in context and in conjunction with other words and phrases. Anti, every much, also means instead of. The Antichrist of Revelation will be the instead of Messiah. He's not going to downplay Jesus. He's going to upplay himself that he is the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. 
That's what anti in the context means there. It can mean against. It can. I'm very anti-violence. There's no instead of violence in my mind. I don't like violence. I'm against it. I tell people that you should find a peaceable solution. That's one way of using the word anti. But here in 1045, it's Christ being given instead of us. That's the mean for anti here. Number nine, God being satisfied or propitiated implies a substitution in 1 John 2, 2. For Jesus Christ is the propitiations of our sins and not our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. Meaning Jesus has provided universally for all and it's applied locally to those who believe. So no, I'm not a universalist in any way, shape or form. And I don't think you can even get that out of 1 John 2, 2 unless you twist the context. Propitiation is basically an appeasing sacrifice. All right? Many world religions do this. It hasn't rained in months, and so we're going to throw one of the virgins into the volcano. Never works on any of the islands. I don't know why they've ever done it. Sounds like a perfectly good waste of a human being to me. And I'm pretty sure the volcano is not even happy or satisfied. But the idea of propitiating is ancient. What can we do to make God not mad anymore? Well, nothing. (laughs) Because you don't have a sacrifice worthy to bring. But Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, who is perfect in every every way, shape, and form, Jesus can propitiate, offering himself as a Paschal lamb. Jesus can, and he did. And last but certainly not least, transferred or imputed righteousness of 2 Corinthians 5, 21 implies his sacrifice is for us. That's the imputed righteousness Jesus offers to you. It's not yours inherently. It's an offer. Why can Jesus offer it? Because he's the one who actually paid for it. You didn't pay for it. Jesus paid for it. So everything that we've really been talking about is absolutely founded, fixed, and ground in the Old Testament scriptures. Christ's atonement at the cross is basically foreshadowed through all of Israel's sacrificial system. The blood atonement of an innocent animal was regularly required for sins. Go back on your own time and study Leviticus 4, verses 14 through 21. That's at the heart of Leviticus 17, 11, all right? Think about the sacrificial system. You sinned, it's your culpability. Now you take an animal from your flock. What did the lamb do? Not a thing, man. Lambs sit around, they eat grass, they make funny noises, and they give all of us meat and wool. All right, that's all lambs are doing. The whole idea of penal substitutionary death atonement is the death of something holy and innocent on behalf of the very guilty. That's the whole idea. And when you brought a lamb from your flock and you sacrificed it there for a sin offering, think about it. It's over. No more wool. If it's a male lamb, it will never breed with any of your female lambs in your flock. If it's a female loss, it's a bigger loss for you because no more wool, no more milk, and no more you lambs, no more baby lambs. The sacrifice for sin is costly, and God by design did that so that we would see it. Jesus' sacrifice was free for you and free for me. But what was it? 
ever so costly, ever so precious. It's costly, but it is free. You see, the whole sacrificial system points forward to Messiah's once for all blood sacrifice for our sins. He's never going to atone again. He's done it once and for all. He's offered one because blood is necessary in making atonement. Leviticus 17, 11, just for content, one more time. The life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Jesus had to go. He had to pour out his blood. You see, this is typologically what that whole sacrifice is talking about. It points forward to the necessity of Christ's blood sacrifice in the New Testament period. Hebrews 9.22 again says, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. They cleansed all of the utensils in the tabernacle and later in both temples with a blood sacrifice. That's how it was purified. Nothing but the blood sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb of God, could ultimately bring atonement for the sins of all of humanity. And that's exactly what John the Baptist knew. In John chapter 1, verses 29 through 21, we read, the next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. That's a profound statement because John the Baptist was Jesus's older cousin by six months. So how can John the Baptist point to his own blood relative cousin and say, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the man who comes after me, but he was before me. And that's because Jesus is eternally the son of God who forever wed his deity to humanity in the person of Christ. And John is telling us all of that theology in three sentences right here. Three little verses he's telling us right here. It's Yeshua right there. My cousin right there, he's the lamb of God. He's the lamb of God. And that's exactly what Jesus is referred to in Revelation the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world. I love when Christian theologians sit around and they wax eloquently about how all of a sudden the crucifixion is like God's Hail Mary plan B. Bogus. I call garbage on that. It it has been and always was plan A. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't be the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the earth. You see, scripture indicates that Christ's atonement is substitutionary in nature. He stood in the gap for us, guys. In short, Jesus died in our place. He was punished for our sins that we might be set free. In short, if Christ did not go to the cross for us, we would still be condemned and in our sins and totally without any hope. And so I want you guys to really think on this. And as we break into small groups in a minute, I want you to think about what are all the implications of this verse? And I know it's a typo, it's two verses, but forgive me and show me some grace. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21 says, now then 
we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Think about all the implications of this verse. And I'll leave it up there so you guys can see it while you break into small groups. But I want that to be the focus of the next 10 to 15 minutes. What are all the implications of the Lord Jesus Christ going and atoning on a cross for us? Go ahead, break into your groups.